Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. And I'm Alex Hollingsworth. Welcome to The Hidden Curriculum, a podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. everybody. Hope that you've had a good week. We are excited to bring you an episode today. Sebastian, what is your favorite city in Europe? <laughs> Baby, a favorite city in Europe. I have only been to very few places in Europe, but I am going to say Barcelona um, or Toledo. I had a really good time in both of those places. Barcelona is just like so awesome because there's like a lot of good food, like things to see. I always love a beach. And then Toledo was just like so like mystic and like art, like old and weird, but like good views. So I think I, either of those. Yeah. I like that. I think the same could be said of Toledo, Ohio. You know, mystic. That's probably how I hear it not true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is your favorite European city? I'll stick with Spain too. Um, I was oh, a, poor, okay. a poor graduate student when I went there, but I went to <laughs> San Sebastian, Spain. It was <gasps> super fun. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's your namesake, right? Yeah, uh, no, I, I've been there. So it's, I, I, yeah, it's awesome. You know, you're just eating like, what, what do they call it in Basque country? Like uh, pinchos instead of tapas, yeah. but like mm-hmm. whatever, just like go around eating like uh, small yes. delicious meals and, and drinking no, wine. It's it was pretty fun. Uh, now Jose. you're making me want to travel. So, uh, sorry, they, you live in the United States, so I don't think you're allowed to travel. To no, I don't think I'm allowed to travel. <laughs> <laughs> Jose, do you have a favorite European city? Milan. Ooh. I love Milan. It, it's a nice, like, circular city, and you can get everywhere very quickly on the metro. And there's all this art and people and soccer, and mm. it's football. <laughs> it's, I, I like Milan a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's the organized part of Italy, right? Like, it as is. you described it, right? It's like if you were in Naples, it's like, yeah, like this, it might exist, the public transit, but taking it is a, you know, mm-hmm. relying on it is a different story. Just so I understand context of this answer, like how many-ish approximate number of cities have you been in Europe? Oh, I've only been in uh, two cities in Europe. So it's okay. the point loss, right? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Our special guest today is Jose Fernandez. Uh, Jose is an associate professor and chair of the economics department at the University of Louisville. He graduated from the University of Virginia. Uh, I've learned recently that I can say wah wah now. Yeah. I don't really know what it means, but but I've learned that Me from the past podcast. <laughs> uh, he conducts research in crime, health, and labor economics. He's serving a second term as a member of the American Economic Association Committee on the Status of Minority Groups in the Economics Profession, a fellow of the Diversity Initiative for Tenure in Economics, and the former president for the Hispanic Latino Faculty and Staff Association at the University of Louisville. He is currently serving as the president of the American Society of Hispanic Economists. Jose, thank you for being here with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and so nice to have two people whose research I follow like a fan, so <laughs> it's great to have you guys here. Thank you so much. We're, we're really excited for this conversation. Now, before we get into anything serious, we would love to know if you could share a fun fact about yourself. All right. I have two fun facts. So yes, uh, one that <laughs> a couple of people know about me is that I used to teach salsa during grad school, and it was a, a way for me to like make some side cash. Myself in Tampa, Florida, and we'd work the nightclubs, and we had this place out in a community center and everything. Uh, it, it was it was a lot of fun, and that's my like little secret thing. How long the did you do it one, for? Oh, I did it for 
in Tampa, I did it for five years. We even had like business cards and everything. Wow. Uh, okay. All right. All right. Casino like salsa that. or rueda salsa. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and your the second? second one, the second one, um, I did this one as a 10 year gift to myself. Um, I always wanted to learn a martial art and I used to wrestle in high school. So jujitsu seemed like a natural fit. And it will be six years this November that I started jiu-jitsu. Um, it's a great form of uh, martial art, but also I get to choke my friends and call it exercise. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a lot of like physical activity in jiu-jitsu? That might be a stupid question, but I'm so ignorant about it. So, so with jiu-jitsu, the one nice thing about jiu-jitsu is that because we don't have punches in it, you can actually go live. And that's where the, the tap is so important. So there is someone who is actually trying to rip your arm off from your body mm. or choke you out. Uh, I've only put two or three of people out. They eventually do tap before then. Wow. Um, but it, it, yes, it, it could be it, it could be quite physical, but you get to walk away from it, right? Whereas a lot of the striking arts, that's not mm. not something I go and leave and then go teach class with a black eye with. <laughs> so if a colleague upsets you, do you like, hey, you want to come home and work out with me later? And then you're like, all right, I'm going to show you who's boss here. That's right. I one time did a boxing class with uh, uh, another economist and they convinced me. It was like, they're like, oh, it's just like exercise or whatever. And then they were sparring and they proceeded to just hit me a lot. I, was like, <gasps> I feel like they invited me. Oh just my gosh. Times, that is so It funny. wasn't like in an aggressive way. I think I was just so bad at boxing. They, they couldn't be helped. You, you should see the faces of the police officers and firefighters. I make tap. They're like, but you're a professor. <laughs> <laughs> Professor by day, better. hero yeah. by night. Superhero right. in Louisville. <laughs> Maybe after I see Shang-Chi, because I'm going to hopefully see it tomorrow, I'll be like, yeah, I'm going to kick everyone. You guys saw it already? No. Oh, okay. yeah. I just love that actor because I love the show Kim's Convenience. So I'm excited. So before we dive into today's topic, let's talk about your work. Is there a paper, project, anything like that that you want to promote? Yeah, so I do a lot of work in health economics, and I usually work in what I sometimes call the, the taboo topics, the topics Ooh. that people want to read, but they don't always cite. They usually use it as a uh, uh, reference in their classes. And hmm. the one I've written the most about is suicide. And I, I sat down, I started thinking one day, who determines what a suicide is? Mm. And that opened up a, uh, a weird Pandora's box. So in the U.S., you have coroners and you have medical examiners. And typically, coroners are elected and medical examiners are appointed. Now, medical examiners are actual physicians who have gone through the full training, residency, and all that stuff to go along with it. Meanwhile, a coroner just has to be a resident of the county and win the election and, in some cases, not have a felony. <laughs> So you don't need any medical training whatsoever, yet coroners cover about 60 to 70% of our population. Mm. How much of the suicide determination is based off of these people who have wow. no medical qualifications whatsoever? Mm -hmm. And it turns out it matters quite a bit. There, oh, no. there are some pretty big changes when you see a system move from a coroner system to a medical examiner system, if you believe that physicians get it right. There's mm. a pretty big switch, and the switch only uh, takes place between accidental deaths and suicide. So everyone calls a homicide the right thing. 
<laughs> right. But you see a big switch between accidental and and um, suicide. Now there could be other motives behind it. So it could be something as simple as in a coroner's um, jurisdiction, they tend to be quite small communities. So you may actually know the families in these cases, right? You might be protecting them mm. and their family from this public type of uh, shame that might come with a suicide. Mm-hmm. So there could be other reasons involved as well. And do you know if the system or whatever set of characteristics one needs to assign the value of suicide to a particular death is that trying to reduce like false negatives or is it trying to be conservative or not necessarily what do we know about that we we, we don't we don't know that it's a necessarily a, a false negative if anything there there have been a, a lot of cries for for people saying that the number of suicides have been undercounted in general i see um for one, the, the mortality files don't do the best job of uh, determining whether or not an overdose right. was an accidental death or, or a suicide. Mm, mm-hmm. um, so, it, you know, it, that's really what's going on here. Mm-hmm. What makes this uh, a harder project is that usually when people look at suicides, they're looking at suicides per capita. But I'm not looking at suicides per capita. I'm looking at suicides per, per death, right? Mm-hmm. There's always a body. There's right. always the bodies. Which way does the body? Which way do we classify the body? Mm-hmm. So I, I've seen this paper presented before. I, I like this quite a bit. I mean, this is again, like as you said, like taboo stuff. Like health economists all the time, we're using mortality data. Um, and I know you you mention it in the paper, but um, Chris Room has this work that talks about like an undercounting of opioid deaths. Mm-hmm. Like, so just like assume when someone dies and on their drug certi- on their death certificate, it says that they died from a drug overdose, that that's correct. But like which drug it is, there's a lot of misclassification. Do you think that like this type of, I mean, I think your paper is called like the political economy of death or something like that. So it's pretty cool. Do you think this matters for all of those different types of things as well? Because you could imagine if you're like an elected official or have a relationship with the mayor, like you may not want to have an opioid problem in your town. Oh yeah, no. I mean, on. just being an elected official in general, I think you you take those things into account. Uh, I think that there's probably a lot of measurement error when it comes to overdose deaths. Uh, I mean, in, mm-hmm. in Chris Room's paper, you he had to look at secondary and and uh, third uh, degrees of separation with some of these drugs to see whether or not opioids were involved mm-hmm. in there. Uh, so it's not it's not really apparent, and it takes a lot of effort on the side of the recorder to do that anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So the recorder's got to sit there and go in and not just say there was a primary cause of death, there was a secondary cause of death, and so on and so forth. And you're talking about someone who's not trained in medicine to do all of those additional calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's asking quite a lot from mm-hmm. those folks. In fact, that that's probably a good research question in of itself. Do coroners mm-hmm. even use? the second and third mm. uh, classifications and uh, the way that um, medical well, that's smart because that's really that would be very simple too. like how detailed are the death certificates right. across these different uh, regimes well that's very exciting thank you for sharing your research sounds really interesting topics <music> all right so now is uh time for one of our favorite segments uh, where we just learn from you about how you get it all done. Uh, We call it the workflow segment, but really you can share with us and our listeners anything that you want about how how it is you organize your day, how you get it all done. Um, And just, I know we mentioned this in the bio, but just to make it clear here, Jose is also the department head 
at Louisville, which means his set of responsibilities is enormous. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm, I'm ready to learn yes. how to become productive. I am definitely a checklist manifesto type of guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, cool. I just finished the book yesterday. That's too long. Did yeah, I feel like now? she could have, he could have gotten to his points in like much shorter than he did. <laughs> but oh, I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, the book is like half as uh, too long, twice as long yeah. as it should be. Yeah, I, I totally agree. In fact, I have put that in a review. That's so funny. <laughs> um, but but I totally believe in the checklist, and I actually start my checklist the night before. So I want to kind of have my day planned out the next uh, the, the night before mainly because I'm not a morning person mm. uh, and I'm not going to take out the time in the morning to do that. I'm just kind of sluggishly going through the day mm-hmm. until I get to my office. Um, and the one benefit of, of really doing that is that you hit the ground running. So even though you, you may be tired and you don't know what you're going to do next or if you're going to do it well, you have this checklist and it's kind of saying, well, at least knock off these things right away. Um, I drop off my son at school at 7 a.m., which means I get to the parking lot and there's no one here because academics love to sleep in. <laughs> uh, and for like the first two to three hours, they were my most productive hours of the day. Somewhere around 10 o'clock is when the uh, flow of church of chair type emails come through. So these are the little fires you have to put out, the reports here and there, the student that needs to talk to you and complain, another student mm. has to cry, uh, the, yeah, the faculty member who ha- is having an issue. Uh, that's when all those things start to happen. Uh, and then by the afternoon, I'm, that's where I try to put in all my meetings. So any of mm. my meetings I have are coming in the afternoon. That ends my day. Eventually, I go home, uh, have dinner with the family, take some downtime, and then everything starts right back up again with that checklist, going to bed, getting up the next day. That's awesome. And so this checklist, is there like a limit of the amount of things that you put it? Or is it kind of like this running checklist that accumulates a bunch of different things throughout the week? So... One of the things I've learned with these checklists is that you actually want to make the items on your checklist very small and and descriptive. So like Mm -hmm. if I am doing a a paper, right, I say I need to make this figure, not all the figures, not whatever. Mm -hmm. I need to make this figure. I need to make this table. Mm -hmm. And if I do it that way, I know I'm going to be more productive because I'm going to manage to get that one activity done. I'm not going to get the entire paper done, but I am going to get that mm-hmm. part of the paper done and slowly but surely uh, the paper starts coming together. So I, I totally get how once you're at a certain phase of a project, you can like discretize it into like, I got to get this paper like, or sorry, I got to get this figure or this other thing done. How do you discretize it? Like, is that its own, like, is like mm-hmm. one of your checklist things like so- map out a plan to finish this paper <laughs> and then make a checklist, well, make a checklist about a, the checklist that I need to discretize. That's right? the best yeah. one. You get an automatic check. Yeah. yeah. Think about the checklist that I'm going to do. Yeah. There you go. I think mean, if you're, if you're an applied micro person, you probably start in the middle of the paper, right? Like you sit down and you actually start with your data mm. <laughs> and you kind of do your descriptive uh, uh, analysis there. And then you, if you're really into applied micro, you just go right into your results from there. And then you start working out, right? So you say, all right, where does this fit in the literature? So the lit review comes next. Mm. And then once you have the lit review and that part done, you actually have the heart of the paper done. 
Now you need to convince the reader to read past the first paragraph. And that's where that intro just matters so much. And that, that's where I spend a lot of the time because I, I really do think, look, when I get a reader hooked, if I don't have them by that next paragraph, they're going to move on to the next thing. I mean, how many things do we download from nbr.org on a Monday and never open up again? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So I've got to get you hooked off of that first paragraph. And if I can do that, then, then things work out. That makes sense. Um, going back a little bit to the checklist, do you use an app or use paint and paper? I do use an app. There's a, an app called, what is it, Manifest, I think. Manifest? Oh, I don't Here. think I've heard about this one. Is it probably colorful? That. I probably made that up. Minimalist. <laughs> Minimalist. Okay. Interesting. Minimalist. So it's just a checklist. It doesn't add any extra colors or features. You can oh, put yeah. a little alarms on it, but it's there. And for me, it, it, it works. Like I can sit there and I can check things off as soon as I get it done. And it actually makes me feel like I was been productive that day. Yeah. Because um, I, I really don't like a day where I probably have done a lot of thinking, but it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like I've actually done anything right, mm-hmm. right. Uh, so, so having that checklist matters do you work on the weekends too or just monday to friday and so i do work on the weekends but i take saturday off i take saturday off i don't do any keep the shabbat econ stuff any ul stuff none of that occurs on saturday that's only family uh, mm-hmm. items on sunday i'll wait until the sun goes down and then I'll, I'll work on some things because then again, I, right, I have to get that checklist started. So, right, I see for Monday. That's uh, right. On Sunday, I'll I'll do that. But you know, Saturdays are sacred. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then when it comes to the three hours that you work in the mornings, um, so you plan what you're going to do the day the night before. I'm sure you have like a ton of things to do. So like, how do you? Let's say you have, are working on two research projects. How do you balance that out? So for projects. my research projects, I balance them out by, by blocks of a week because I have to give myself some forgiveness. So I say this week I'm working on this paper and that gives me the ability to shift time within the week. And it mm. also is easier for me to give expectations to my co-authors, mm. right? Mm. So they know they're going to get it the following week. I, I like that a lot because a, lo- a thing that I hear a lot from people, and I believe them when we ask them this question is like, Oh, I like do this thing on Tuesday. And then it is like done on Tuesday, but that just doesn't work for me because I often take too long or like, you know, get distracted either willfully or, you know, some other thing happens and I'm not anything like a department head, you know, like I don't have all of these people emailing me with different fires and I can barely keep on track. So (laughs) I I think that's a kind of a nice, it's like uh, building some robustness in the system to like, I don't know, just in general, all, all sorts of crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. What about, let's say that there is a miracle day in which you didn't get a lot of emails. And so that like, let's say 10 to afternoon, you find yourself having some free time. How do you tackle that? All right. So when I, I do try to schedule in my jujitsu time, but mm. when, um, when I have that unbelievable three hour <laughs> block after the first three hour block, mm-hmm. If I'm going, if I'm going pretty hot on a research paper, I'll just, I'll bury through it. I'll, I'll just continue mm. to go through it. Because once you see the picture, once you understand what's going on mm-hmm. in your research paper, it's really hard to put it down again. Because you know that if you put it down, you're going to forget a lot of those 
good ideas that you had along the way. And it's tough to restart that engine. And so, so I will push through. Now, if not, like I just get through my checklist and, and I'm kind of burnt out, right? This is the third revision of that paper or what have you. Uh, I'll, I'll try to get in some, some jujitsu. Hmm. Today, we want to talk about the American Society of Hispanic Economists. And I believe we can go straight for the first question. Should we say, call it ASH? Or how do you want to call it? <laughs> what yeah, is the action? It's controversial. It's controversial for some of our listeners because there is another association called the American Society of Health Economists. And I think we all call it Ash Econ because Ash was there first. And so <laughs> they can call themselves Ash Econ. And I think we all are involved with Ash Econ in some ways. And so, I mean, it's fine. <laughs> um, so maybe can you tell us a little bit about what is Ash and what is its role in the economics profession? ASH is the American Society of Hispanic Economists. Uh, it was uh, created due to the shortage of Hispanic Americans in our discipline. Uh, we're actually coming up on our 20th anniversary at this next ASSA meeting. So oh, we will nice. be 20 uh, at the 2022 ASSA meeting. So ASH is Gen Z. <laughs> yeah, ASH nice. is Gen Z. Gotcha. <laughs> um, I, I am the, the president, and really, we, we try to put together as many pieces of programming that can motivate people and help promote people through the pipeline. And so this includes things like um, setting up sessions at national uh, and regional conferences. And you'll see lots of those things when we're out and about. Uh, we also have the Hispanic Economic Outlook. It's a uh, more of a popular press type periodical so that we can get actual data from say the BLS or mm -hmm. um, the American Community Survey out to the rest of the general public on how things are changing within the Hispanic community to show that Hispanic community is actually very diverse, mm -hmm. that we're not all from one nation. And because of that, they have different uh, views on politics, different views on immigration, yeah. <laughs> different views on education. Um, we've even done some special features such as uh, the effects of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico and how that had varied effects. Uh, last year, we did one on the COVID crisis and how it particularly hit Hispanic communities. Mm. Um, for example, uh, Latinx women are still um, the group that is the most uh, hit by the unemployment effects associated with COVID. So they mm. still haven't come back to the previous levels. Um, these are all things that, that we try to do. Most recently, what we've been doing is making a seminar series that Sebastian participated in hey. uh, during the COVID crisis. So every month we have uh, someone come in. They don't have to give a talk that's about uh, Hispanics. Uh, I just really pick people I know and there are members uh, to come and present. And we've also started a program on mentorship, but mentorship for individuals who are trying to get from associate professor to full professor or from associate professor into some administrative position oh, wow. like um, uh, chair or associate dean. Which is super interesting because maybe, maybe I don't hear those are often available, but maybe that's just because I'm a young scholar and I actually don't hear about them. But that's pretty cool how different people can get involved at the stages of PhD students, junior faculty or senior faculty. 
Sure. And so one of the things that, that I love about your podcast that you talk about the hidden curriculum, right? Yeah. And that was the kind of things that we had to pass down to each other through these, these networks. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You didn't hear about these things usually going on through your own programs or your graduate schools, right? You were all just cared, all you cared about was finishing that dissertation, getting out, hitting the market. And you didn't know about all these additional networks that come into it. That's where we come into play. We, uh, we invite graduate students, we hold sessions for them. Um, we participate heavily in the AEA's pipeline and mentorship program. Um, we're very strong members in, in SIMGAP. Uh, so we are trying to do everything we can to move individuals along that pipeline inside of our discipline. And, and there are leaky parts to our pipeline, right? Mm. So even now, right, actually we'll be 20 years old. Even now, the number of Hispanic American economists is still mm-hmm. quite low, mm. although there are lots of Hispanic economists. I, I like this idea quite a bit that that you brought up before before you started talking about some of these specifics where, where you help post-tenure people along. And it reminds me a little bit of the... Um, Oh, how do you, it's the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity. They have this program called Post-Tenure Pathfinders. And, hmm. and the stuff that they, I get their emails, so I, I haven't participated in this program. With the stuff that they talk about, like, why should you take this? is kind of exactly what you just outlined, where it's like, uh, you know, a lot of the advice is there's a paucity of it out there, but like is, is towards junior faculty members. And if we're really like serious about fixing some of these leaks, we need to like, like leaks in the pipeline, that is like, we need to, push people and like make them reconnect with like, why are they doing this? And uh, I don't know. I think, I think that's really neat. Um, did you develop it sort of like intentionally here? Or is this just something that uh, has, has always been a part of? Uh, so the idea that there aren't any Hispanic uh, economists that are chairs or that are associate deans has always lingered around. And in fact, the ones that are currently we're all founding members of ASH. <laughs> but oh, wow. I can sit back and I can think, right? So like uh, Del Torre is now the president of uh, San Diego State and she was a founding member of ASH. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we have uh, Maria Moro who's now the uh, provost at uh, University of Missouri, St. Louis. And she was That's a founding awesome. member of, of ASH, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They didn't see themselves in those roles and they they, they, they were sitting there trying to figure out a way, well, how are we going to get our junior people promoted if we don't have any senior people there to defend them, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and this is part of that pipeline. So here we're just formalizing what was previously an informal system of calling mm-hmm. up individuals and asking for advice. Now we're actually reaching out and trying to make it more formal where there are more workshops, there are ideas of how do you sit down and really prepare your packet to become a full professor? Does it mean that you have to be a full professor at your current institution or should you look across mm. the fence and see if there are other opportunities at other institutions if that's what you really want. Who, who can join um, is open to anyone. Um, and I think one of the important distinctions or not distinctions, but things that I hear is, oh, is this like for people who are American and Hispanic or it's people from international abroad, right? Who can also join who are Hispanic. And so anyone can join. And in some cases, you may already be a member and not know it. Mm. <laughs> uh, so 
you don't have to be Hispanic to join. Um, and even though the mission says it was to help promote Hispanic Americans, really the majority of our membership is from, uh, if you will, immigrant scholars who are right. in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's $25 for PhD economists if they want to do an individual uh, group. Uh, it's $10 for, for graduate students. It's free for undergrads. But oh. here's the, the kicker. Uh, if your institution pays an institutional membership, then anyone in your department is technically a member of ASH. And we have a fairly long list of institutional members. And so there are actually a lot more people who, without knowing it, are actually part of ASH. They mm-hmm. just have to come up and participate if, if that's what they want. Uh, and we have the list of institutional members on our website. And so come on, come on in. Yeah, that's <laughs> You're right. more than welcome. Baden is an institutional member, so shout out to Baden uh, <laughs> uh, for being an institutional member. Um, that's great. And so what does it mean also just to be clear to like join ASH? Is it just put yourself in an email list or what's the best way to like know what is up with ASH? Sure. So if you, um, once you become a member through the, the website, we invite you onto our email list and there you'll get a lot of uh, the a lot of the announcements that come through. So right now we're going through the job wave, right? There's lots of announcements for jobs that are coming through. There's lots of announcements for awards because it's also a time period where awards start to be Mm. handed out and nominations are looking forward. Um, Best podcast. That's right. (laughs) That's a new award. Because there's actually a lot of podcasts that could get it. I was just thinking of ours, but now I'm like, oh, actually, no, there's a lot of that. No, we, we would lose. Yeah, we would there, definitely there's lose. There's lots of podcasts. You have a growing audience, though, so you'll see. We have a growing audience. <laughs> it's easy to have a high growth rate when you start with a low number. That's though. right. <laughs> you, can, you can put best new podcasts, right? There you go. Best new artists. <laughs> I like it. So so once you, after you join, um, after you submit your application, and then you're part of the listserv, and that's where you're going to get a lot of these communications. So, for example, right now, I was looking for people to help me with mock interviews, right? We're having the interview sessions oh, online fantastic. again, and why not go ahead and do these mock interviews right through this type of interface that we're having now, since that's what the candidates are going to be experiencing. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that we like to do. So there's lots of little calls for service along the way, um, and we try to give you some return on your membership by being able to present in our sessions by uh, mm-hmm. potentially having your paper in the AEA papers and proceedings if you're in one of our ASSA sessions. And so there's lots of ways to put yourself out there. I also like to drop as much as I can um, members work to, re- to, sorry, to reporters whenever they call me so oh. they can go ahead and reach out to other individuals. That's great. And and just so people know, another kind of like implicit reason to join these organizations is because you can tap into a network that could definitely help you in different ways, uh, even more informally. Um, and I would also want to add to that, you can also choose to be a very active member of these organizations. So if there's something that you want Ash to do, or would be awesome for Ash to do, then maybe mention it to Jose, to the president, to the committee, and maybe they'll get it up started, um, whatever initiative it is. So don't like think that you know you have to take a very pass- passive role, um, but you can be an active role because organization is whatever you wanted it to be, uh, as long as you're uh, a good member. And this is one of those things that's like 
so obvious once you say it. And this is as with many of the things that we talk about in this podcast. But <laughs> the like, obvious podcast, yeah. Yeah, but for the other Ash, so for Ash Econ, like they have a newsletter, and I was curious why they weren't doing one type of article, and I like sent Sebastian an email, and that's you know, then we wrote a little article, and like I never would have thought about that had I not been talking mm-hmm. with Sebastian at a conference, and he was like, "Why don't you just do it?" <laughs> yeah. Because maybe can you help us think about like what are maybe the Ash main events that occur every year? So like if people are, are around, they can tap into. Sure. So a few of the main events are starting at the ASSA meetings. We have our two sessions that are there. Those are AA sponsored sessions. So they have potential of being in papers and proceedings. <clears throat> we do a joint conference with the NEA, which is the National Economic Association. I believe you've had them on before. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, usually surrounded on uh, freedom and, and social justice. And so those are those type of papers that end up being there. We're at every one of the regional uh, conferences. And then, of course, I've, I've told you about the additional services that we do, which is the, the seminars that we have uh, mm-hmm. online, the mock interviews, and the mentorship program. That's great. And so just to make sure that this stays in people's head. If you're a PhD student or junior faculty, even senior faculty, and you're trying to get into one of these conferences, the big ones or the regional ones, consider submitting it uh, as a session with uh, ASH uh, or the NEA for that matter. Um, and maybe that's a higher likelihood of you getting in. So just, just that's kind of like something you should take away from this conversation. And this isn't like firm 100% knowledge, but I, I think it's true. And you, you guys might know, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure at like the AEA, they go around and count the number of people in the room mm-hmm. uh, yes, for each one of these do. sessions. And then the number of sessions that Ash or ARI or any of these organizations has the next year is a function of attendance in the previous year. So even, I don't know if they're doing this with Zoom, but if you're a member or you're interested, you can also support by attending the sessions because then it will help them have more slots during the next year. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. Absolutely. Awesome. No, that, that's very important. That's true with any of the allied groups. If you mm-hmm. want them to continue to appear at the ASSA meetings, you need to be in the room. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how you show your support. You need to be in the room. Great. I also wanted to ask you specifically about this economic speaker database that I believe uh, maybe it's unrelated to Ash, but I know you have worked on it. So can you tell us a little bit of what it's about and how that came about? The Economic Speakers Database. This was uh, a baby that uh, that we created because I got so tired of hearing the same comment and more or less excuse mm. over and over again, which was, well, I can't find a URM economist that works on X. Mm. I can't find them. And it's kind of like, you can't find them because you're not looking. Right? <laughs> you can't, because the, the, they exist. So uh, a little background, uh, Jen Doliak and Elizabeth Pancotti, they, they, re- they wrote a paper. They actually sat down and uh, recorded seminar invitations from all of like the top uh, 100, I think it is, top 100 departments. Uh, and they found that less than 2% of mm. the seminar speakers were URM economists. Mm. Mm. Less than 2%. Right. Uh, so if you're in a discipline that complains about diversity and complains about the lack of diversity, 
and you're also not putting people out there to try to improve that image, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, so I sat down with um, uh, Amanda Bayer and Renee Bowen and said, you know what, let's, let's just go ahead and make a platform where people can add themselves onto it. Uh, and we have people go ahead, they register in, they can register if they identify as a URM, as a female economist, as a member of the LGBTQ community. Um, and, you know, it took us some time to debate over all those, but each one of those, at least in econ, are in a sense underrepresented groups. Uh, now, if you, I just checked today, there's 648 entries and they cover every single JEL code. Oh, wow. So I don't want to hear this excuse <laughs> mm-hmm. that I can't find a person that does X because you could actually find multiple people that do X and you can actually look down by keyword. <laughs> <laughs> and and we've used this before. And I don't know if the, I missed this the first time or if uh, this is a new feature, but a thing that's important for us when we invite seminar speakers is sometimes costs to uh, of the person to attend. Mm. And there's a what I think is a new feature of this database, which is a map. So you can click the map oh, and see that. where people are geographically dispersed. You can be like, okay, uh, what kind of fits within my perceived budget constraint? Uh, so huh. I make sure I'm not inviting a person like from Hawaii or something. Right. Sorry to yeah. the people in Hawaii, but it's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with, with a little R coding and the help of Google Maps, you can <laughs> you can put all that stuff together. That, that was a feature that we added. We, we've, we've been adding small little features here and there. The one thing we don't put up there are uh, our emails. We just put your your web address. Uh, really, we do that to prevent spammers from. You're a good person. You. That's a, whoever <laughs> thought not to add the email. This is smart. It's yeah. a small cost to, to find the uh, email address for us, uh, but it prevents much, much spam. And so if people want to, as I mean, there's 600 entries, which is amazing. I'm sure there's going to be new scholars coming in. If people want to add uh, to that, how do they do that? So they go to the, uh, to the website. If you put in, um, economics diversity speaker database, it's going to pop up as usually in the top three. Mm -hmm. Uh, If not, you can go directly to the SimGap website and we link to it directly from SimGap. Um, On that page, you'll see on the left-hand side, a place where you can click on and go into the form and you can fill in your information. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you move from institutions and you need it updated, you can just email me and I can update that or you can refill them in the form and it will fix it for you. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, another thing that I want to highlight, uh, this is also an amazing tool, um, is that it, I don't know when was this, but I know there was a, an addition of putting keywords of kind of like keywords of the research that you work on, uh, which is really cool and helpful. Um, but I definitely have noticed that a lot of my peers have not put that. So if you're already in this database, maybe come again and edit your entry so that you can actually have the right keywords attached. Because I believe right now, if you type Medicaid, only Vicky Perez and me are the ones working in Medicaid, which I'm go sure. Vicky. Go Vicky. But I'm sure that's, <laughs> Sorry, I you're under, not the I only undermined two. your point. Vicky's, no. awesome. <laughs> Vicky's amazing, does amazing work, but I'm positive she's, her and I are not the only ones that are doing Medicaid work on this database. So just go and, ahead. And this and is that. true of other things too. Like I just typed in lead and Ludovica Gatze shows up. She mm. correctly identifies her as someone doing lead research, but there are many other uh, people that could be in this database that are, that are not popping up. <laughs> That's great. And also, by the way, for our listeners, you can use this obviously for people who want to invite people to seminars, but also if you want to connect, especially in this 
virtual world, if you're a junior scholar and maybe you're looking for somebody who's URM in a particular area, this could be a great way of finding those scholars, following them on Twitter or like follow their work and just find more about them. So if you're a person that you're like, oh, I don't know if there are people like this in the profession, go look in this uh, list and, and maybe you can find some somebody that um, uh, fits your description. I've used it for um, making sessions. So like when I need to find discussions or I need to find new papers to add, it's, it's been awesome to do exactly that. Cause I can find people, I have their most recent working paper by going to their webpage. Right. Mm -hmm. It, it works out really well. Um, yeah, I, it's I, actually, I it's funny cause it's surprising. Well, maybe not surprising, but like, I wonder if the, I always wonder if the AA had like a database of just like the same thing, but just everyone <laughs> like we're forming right concessions. Um, but obviously this is, this is super helpful. So just for clarity, for a person that might be thinking about uh, adding themselves to the list, did they need to be a member of one of these groups to add themselves? Uh, do they need to be living in the United States to add themselves? Uh, what other restrictions should there be before someone is uh, going in and adding themselves to the database? So they don't need to live in the United States to add themselves. In fact, if you go to the map right now, you'll see some people, particularly in Europe, who have identified themselves. You do have to identify with one of the uh, subgroups. You could potentially identify with more of them, but you need to identify with at least one of them. Uh, the URM one is a little bit more restrictive in the sense that we're talking about uh, American minority groups, whereas the female economist is a little bit wider and LGBTQ um, is one that's uh, clearly across uh, international boundaries. And I don't see anyone in the map from Peru. So if anyone of my Peruvian friends are listening, y'all should sign up. Um, maybe you're in the United States, but also I know a lot of them are not. And they're in Peru, so sign up. Every week, we like to ask our guests for a recommendation of the week. This can be anything, podcast, command, an app, a book, a song, anything that improves your life in a small way. Jose, what is your recommendation of the week? So as soon as I became chair, I started getting to all these leadership books and things on time management. And most of them are just seriously redundant and you get tired of them right away. But the best one, uh -oh. particularly if you like something that's efficient, mm -hmm. is eat that frog. Yeah. 21 Great Ways to Stop Procrastinating and Getting More Done <laughs> Less Time by Brian Tracy. I highly recommend it. Even has little like activities for you to do at the end of every chapter. And they're mm. short chapters. So mm. you feel very productive getting the chapters done. <laughs> so I should not, I should not do the like audiobook. I should do the physical book. Preferably. I mean, I did the audiobook because that's what saves me time. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but I, 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 I liked it a lot and and it um there is just little quotes here and there. And it just feels like it takes a lot of those big leadership books and smacks it down into about a quarter of the size. I also listened to the audiobook of this and I, I paused it to do some of the activities. Some of them I listened to and I'm like, ah, I get the idea. Mm -hmm. um, but one mm -hmm. of the ones I don't remember exactly how it was phrased, but it was basically like, think of your five-year and 10-year goals and write down them as they relate to like family or work. Or mm -hmm. and then there were a few like subcategories. And I, I took the time and wrote that down. And that's now a part of like, I have like a list of like mm. annual goals like this year i want to get like this revision resubmitted or something and at the bottom of that list of like annual goals i just copy and pasted the activity from the eat that frog book oh because cool. i was like oh this is actually like really helpful for me about thinking like <laughs> what do i actually care about and i That's hadn't awesome. sat down to think about that before this book so i agree with you Jose. this book's awesome <laughs> my favorite quote from the book is 
maximize the quality of your time at work and the quantity of your time with your family. Ooh, interesting. Interesting. I like and, that. And that. That's really like what I think about when I, when I sit mm-hmm. down and do work. Yeah. Yeah. Cause presumably your family is enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. That's excellent. Thank you for that recommendation. Alex, what is your recommendation of the week? So mine is also a book. Um, okay. and this, uh, I, you know, we are currently teaching again. I don't know when this will air, uh, but the, uh, a book that makes my teaching life much easier is a book by Andrew Gelman called teaching statistics, a bag of, of tricks. And it is fantastic. And it's a little dated. I think there might be a new edition, but I have this older edition. Um, it's also by Deborah Nolan. Um, and I, it's just filled with these activities and like, I'll just give you an oh, example wow. of one of them to show variants. So I'm showing them a, a map. And the first map is, uh, the places in the U S the counties that have the highest kidney cancer mortality in the whole U S so you pass this out to your class. This is just like a little activity in the book they suggest doing to teach variants. You have them develop like a little theory, like why are these places the highest kidney cancer mortality okay. places? And it's in rural areas and they come up the, like invariably the class comes up with thoughtful reasons why that might be. Yeah. And you show them another map. You don't tell them what it is. And you're like, do your uh, hypotheses fit the second map? Like this is another mm. mortality statistic and they do. It's also rural areas. It's just different rural areas. Mm-hmm. And then you, you lay the hammer on them and it's the Andrew Gelman hammer, which is these are the lowest kidney cancer mortality rate ca- counties. And it turns out it's an example about variance in the tails, right? Mm. Like this is the places with no mortality and the places with that with low population where like one person died. So it's, it's a series oh, of many of these different examples that are really salient. That. They're well thought out and they can help you teach various things. Uh, and it just makes my teaching life so much more enjoyable. Uh, so I, I recommend checking out the book. So it's kind of like giving a lot of the, those examples, like the plain example of condition and the dependent variable with the bullets. So it's just a bunch of those essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't even know if that particular example falls in this book, okay. but yeah, it's, it's a lot of different activities that you can do. I love class. that. At like uh, collect, like, like he suggests, co- like creating a class database of like physical attributes of the class, mm-hmm. like not like their height and weight, but like hand span, mm. things like that. And then using that throughout the class to do various other things. And it's, it's, I don't know, it kind of gets the students a little more involved. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm a little bit upset that you haven't said this recommendation of the week. I forgot about it because I literally I been teaching on- five years and I just heard <laughs> this. This is upsetting. Uh, because I was on paternity leave when we started the podcast. So I didn't. Teach no the excuse. Class then. You play like a champ. Okay. It's my real, it's the real excuse. I just forgot about it until this semester. <laughs> that's a good one though. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, my recommendation of the week is going to be an application, which is on the uh, computer. So it's called chirp app. C H I R R. Uh, dot AAP, dot APP, sorry, I'll put the link on the show notes. This is just an application that somebody wrote to uh, make it easier to write Twitter threads. So I usually have a Twitter thread uh, with every single episode. And I've started to using this application because I saw Jason Abeluk uh, using it to do his threads and reply to all his threads. And it's actually really awesome, really great. It's free, but there's also like a pro and a, you know, extra pro version uh, that lets you do more stuff. But um, I think it's super nice and easy to use and highly recommend it. So if you want to do a lot of uh, Twitter threads, check the Chirp app at chirp.app.com or maybe not.com. Awesome. Well, thank you for being here with us today. If people want to find more about you and your work, uh, where should they go? Just go to louisville.edu backslash faculty. 
uh, jfernand02. Just Google me. Just Google me. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Great. That's all that we have for you folks today. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. And thank you for tuning in. Thanks, everyone. Take care.